Bless the Lord. Let's go to the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, the 71st Psalm. We're going to Psalm 71 and Psalm 145. Psalm 71, verse 18. Give me a moment. Still here, pages. It's good to have our Bibles, amen. Something about having the Word of God in our hands. Bless the Lord. Psalm 71 and 18 says, Now also, when I am old and gray-headed, O God, forsake me not until I have showed thy strength unto this generation and thy power to everyone that is to come. Psalm 145 and verse 4 says this, One generation shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. One generation shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts feel led of the Lord this morning to minister to us as a family, but also as families, to our families within the church. And that's why I've asked the kids to stay downstairs. And with the help of the Lord this morning, my wife mentioned a song that her uncle used to, used to play in his car. I didn't have the privilege of hearing it played. My mother used to sing it to me when I was a kid. And the words of that song, I can remember a little bit more says, roll back the curtain of memory now and then. Show me where you've brought me from and where I might have been and remind me. And this morning, with the help of the Lord, I want to preach from that theme. I'm taking that as confirmation from the Lord today. From this one word, remember. Remember. Let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you for your presence, for your anointing in your house. Pray, Lord God, that you would open our hearts Lord God, that your will would be done, Lord, not our will, not my will, Lord, but that your will would be done amongst us, that you would be glorified in us and through us, Lord God, we pray. We thank you for your anointing. We just pray, Lord, that, Lord, you have chosen this vehicle, Lord, of preaching to speak to your people, and that is our desire today, Lord, that you would speak to your people. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless the Lord. I think all of us are aware that yesterday marked the 100th remembrance of the involvement of Australian and New Zealand forces in the, in the fighting during the First World War at a place called Gallipoli that has since come to be known particularly as Anzac Cove and most of us are aware that that word Anzac is a representation of both of the Australian and New Zealand armed forces. And uh, at a time in history when war did not include the technology or the computers and satellites that they have nowadays. And so soldiers were poured by the thousands into battlefields and, and just the, the, the casualty rates were horrific as that was really the only way that they knew how to fight. They just poured men and resources into a battlefield and the, the tragic loss of life was difficult for us to comprehend. And we know that the forces of these armies didn't only fight at Gallipoli, but they fought in Europe and in Northern Africa and other battlefields as well. 
But the fighting at Gallipoli has, since that time, come to be a focal point. It's come to be something of an idea or an ideal that represents the memory of soldiers that died fighting for this country. And uh, I have absolutely no desire whatsoever this morning to glorify war in any way. War is a horrible thing. It is a terrible thing. And unless we have been involved in it, we can only begin to imagine what it's like. And the, the mass media of our day has an ability to glorify war and even to romanticize it, but that is not reality. I listened to an old man on the radio the other day who fought in, obviously it wasn't the First World War, but in a conflict, and he, he was asked if you, could, if you could communicate something to people today. He said, what would it be? And he said that they would understand the horror of war. He was saying that it was not something to be remembered fondly or to talk about like it was a pleasant thing. He said, but he said the horror was what he remembered. And at a simple level, and I'm not interested in getting into politics or opinions this morning, but at a simple level, many, many people lost their lives in a battle for our freedom. And the nation that we are privileged to live in owes that freedom to the sacrifice of others. In fact, the nation we live in is so blessed that there are people that come from across the world to live here in the hope of a better life for them and for their families. And one of the things I love the most about both our nation and our church is that diversity of culture. It is something that is precious and that is, that is wonderful in the sight of God, but often it has been brought about because of conflicts across the globe where people have left difficult circumstances in hope of a better circumstance, particularly for their families. And we need, to be we need to be reminded this morning that we are very, very blessed. We are incredibly blessed to live in a time and in a place that we do. Amen. And the idea of the Anzac spirit has been woven into the fabric of our national identity. It is something that Australians as a whole, even people that may not have originally come from Australia or have a lot of heritage in Australia, still after a period of time begin to associate themselves with because it is considered a part of who we are, whether we like that or not. But a hundred years on, you and I don't have any direct connection with the people from that time. There are no surviving soldiers from that First World War that I am aware of in our nation simply because of the passage of time. Men grow old and men pass away. Amen. And the children that are born in this generation and the children that were born in my generation have not been exposed to the horrors of war. And I thank God for that. You know, that's not something I say with regret today, but that's something that we should be very, very grateful for. Our children, we, they do not know what it is to have a father or a brother or an uncle, or a son, or a husband, not come home. They don't know what it feels like to go through that kind of emotion. And these kind of feelings cannot be communicated in a school assembly. that are often held in our schools on Anzac Day. And, and let me say, I, I think our children should be taught to respect the sacrifice of men and women in conflict. But they cannot grasp what it felt like for children that lived in those times. I know in Western Australia, particularly, there was a very high level of involvement in the First World War and, and a high level of casualty. And so 
it would have not been an uncommon thing for children at that time frame in history to have known somebody or even in their own houses to have lost somebody that was not coming home, that they may never ever have found out what happened to that individual. Now it may be this morning that we have relatives that have served in conflicts since the First World War. Unfortunately in our history there's not a shortage of war to participate in. But uh, even when we think of the Second World War and the Vietnam War and even those conflicts are slipping into the pages of history. They're not as present in our thinking as they were when they were taking place and that's perfectly understandable. And in this day and in this time we see the identity of our nation being drastically changed. Morals that once seemed as though they would always be a part of who we are are being discarded as out of date and out of fashion. The voices and demands of minority groups are holding the whole country hostage to their demands because we have an imbalance of an understanding of what human rights is. We have people, and this is not a history lesson today, so just bear with me, but we have people that have fled from countries that are under the rule of Islamic governments only upon their arrival and settlement to demand that we respect and tolerate and even implement the things that they fled from. Let me be very clear, I believe in tolerance. I believe in respect for others and respect for individuals. I, I'm not suggesting that, that we should not do that, but when, when minorities that would have the majority submit to their preferences and change the identity of a nation, something is out of balance. Let me, let me give you an example to bring some balance perhaps to your understanding. How successful today do you think we would be if we went to Canberra and went to Parliament House and said, because in our faith we do not take the Lord's name in vain, we would like this nation not to use the name of Jesus as an expression of cursing or frustration. How, how much leverage do you think we'd actually get in Parliament House? Not a lot. Not a lot, but that is effectively what is happening with many other groups. And please, I want to be very clear, do not anybody take home from this that I am against any particular race or faith. I believe that we should have a country where those things can happen in freedom. Because if we want it, we have to be willing to extend it. But there is a place where it fits. And I think in our society that place is being misinterpreted. And the identity of our nation is being altered accordingly. In the Old Testament, in the Word of God, we read about a kingdom that was very different from one king to another. The kingdom of Israel under King David was vastly different from the kingdom of Israel under his son, King Solomon. David knew the battlefield. David knew the clash of the sword and the shield. He knew what it was to lose brothers, to lose friends in a war. Even when the fighting was finished and David reigned over all of the land, there are no doubts in my mind that when he visited certain places, they stirred memories of conflicts that took place there. When he went to places where there were fields that now grew grain, he remembered them covered in the corpses of men's bodies. Cities, towns and marketplaces that rang with the sounds of children and happiness, he remembered a different story of a siege and a conquering and, and men losing their lives. That was David's kingdom. But Solomon, 
did not know what it was to stand shoulder to shoulder with another man in battle. He never raised a sword in anger in, in, in war. He did not know what it was to bury a fellow soldier. He did not know what it was to look upon the faces of a mother and her children whose father was not coming home. Those memories belong to David, not to Solomon. And I, I'm not suggesting there's anything wrong with that. The reason David fought was to establish that kind of a kingdom. That was the victory that God gave them. But yet Solomon, in his comfort and in his time of prosperity and peace, introduced things into the kingdom of Israel that David would never have considered. They would never have happened on David's watch, we might say. Yes, Solomon built a wonderful temple that his father was not permitted to build. Solomon built that incredible edifice that is difficult for us to even measure the value of today. But he also tolerated idolatry. He also allowed temples and places of worship to be built to false gods in the same city as the temple to the one true and living God. And he did that and compromised for the sake of peace and relationships with other nations and other peoples. Amen. Some of you know where I'm going already this morning. But in the church today, not in the last century at the time of the First World War in King David's time, but today, 2015, there is nothing better. There is absolutely nothing better for a family than to be raised in the house. I don't just mean inside these four walls. That's a part of it. But the house of God is not just built in concrete and steel and all that other stuff. There is no better privilege or no better blessing or no better benefit for a family than to be raised in the house of God. And when that perpetuates or when that is carried from one generation to another and we have first and second and third generations being raised in the house of God and being raised in the ways of God, it is a wonderful thing. The psalmist said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. It is a benefit to be raised in the house of God. It is The word perk really cheapens the idea, but it is a privilege and an honor to have your family come into God's house to worship God with brothers and sisters of like precious faith. That is not something to ever be treated lightly. Bless the Lord. You this morning may be the first generation of your family that's in the church. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. What a difference that will make to your children and to their children if the Lord tarries. You may also have been born in this thing and know absolutely nothing else. Praise God for that as well. Amen. You see, our children, your children, my children, need to make their own choices about serving God. They need to take ownership of the gospel for themselves. Somebody said once that God has no grandchildren, and that is a true statement. You are a child of God. You're not a grandchild of God. You cannot have a relationship with God via a previous generation. You must have it yourself. But at the same time, to have parents and grandparents who are children of God and serve God and live for God and walk with God is an incredible blessing. 
I would not trade the fact my mother walks with God for anything in my childhood. That part of my upbringing is worth more to me than my education. It's worth more to me than the fact that I had a roof over my head, food in my belly and clothes on my back. The fact that there was a parent in my life that said, we are going to the house of God. Every time they open the doors, we're going to be in the house of God. Did that save my soul? No. I had to make my own choices. But it was of a great advantage to me that somebody brought me into the presence of the Lord. Amen. Bless the Lord. Just as you and I do not know the horror of Gallipoli in a first-hand way, just as Solomon did not know the pain of the battle, our children raised in the church do not know what it is to be on the front line of the devastation of sin. They do not know the agony, the heartache, and the bondage, and the addictions, and the shackles, and the pain, and the suffering that sin can bring into a life of an individual and into a family. Children that are born and raised in the house do not know what it is to see a father assault a mother. They do not know what it is to live with a revolving door of one parent's boyfriends or girlfriends and wondering how long this relationship will last and what will this one be like and will they be good to me or won't they be good to me. They don't know what it is to have nothing to eat because the shopping money was gambled away or spent on one addiction or another. Our children do not know the emptiness of a false religion or being taught the rituals and routines that a dead idol demands of people but leaves them with nothing but emptiness. They do not know what it is, and God forbid that they should know what it is to be pushed aside or to be placed on a shelf while their parents pursue wealth and career above all else. Our kids do not know that pain. Bless the Lord. Forget not all his benefits. Some of you that are first-generation apostolics can still remember some of those experiences. But praise God he's delivered you from that. And praise God that your children do not need to taste that life. Talking about remember this morning. Talking about remember. But if we are not careful, all of that can be undone in a single generation. If we do not guard and protect the quality of spiritual life that we have. I'm not talking about the nation of Australia now. I'm not talking about the comfort you have in your homes and your jobs and your schools. But I'm talking about in our spiritual lives. If we do not protect that which is precious, that which was paid for with the ultimate price, it can be lost in the single generation. It can be lost. Amen. As much as remembering the Anzacs is a part of the identity of our nation, remembering the places that God has brought us from or the places that he has brought our parents or our grandparents from needs to remain a part of our identity as the children of God. We may not have suffered some of those horrors, but we still need to remember that we were saved from our sin that our parents were saved from their sin and our grandparents may have been saved from their sin as well. Just as we should not glorify war, we do not glorify sin. It's wrong to brag about the things you used to do before you were saved. It's not a good thing to rejoice in iniquity. 
But it is a good thing to say, God delivered me from addiction, from bondage, from shackles, from brokenness, from emptiness. But to forget what Jesus did for us and to forget how we came to be so blessed and to forget how our children came to be so blessed is to open the door for the introduction of compromise like Solomon did and the return of sin and its bondage. Solomon did not give up on God. Solomon didn't cease to worship God, but he added other gods to his God. He married the princess of Egypt and the princess of this land and that land because it was beneficial to him. And he considered it a wise action, and it was a wise action in natural thinking. But it was not a wise action according to the Word of God. And when you and I make the mistake of making decisions about our relationship with God with natural wisdom, we will find ourselves in the same place. It is not likely that you will build an altar to Baal in your backyard or an altar to Ashtaroth, or any of these other false gods that surrounded the nation of Israel. But our society is just as idolatrous, if not more, than those societies were. And your natural reasoning will cause you to compromise and introduce things that were not meant to be there, that you were delivered from in the first place. I have a friend who is a minister in the USA and I, he told us that he, he and his wife took their two children and they would drive when they were visiting big cities. They, they would drive through parts of town where it wasn't that there were parts of town that had sin and parts that didn't. But he would drive through parts of town where the suffering and the agony of sin was very visible where addiction and debauchery and all manner of horrible things were taking place. And they deliberately drove their children through those parts of town and said to them, you are one generation from this. You are one generation from being in this situation. They wanted their kids to understand that the good life that they had grown up with, with the benefits and the blessings of God, could easily just fall through their hands like sand and be gone if it wasn't hept it wasn't looked after and that same principle applies to you and i today your children my children will make their own decisions as parents we wish often that we could make their decisions for them but we can't any more than our parents could for us but our children will have to make their own choices and i can't speak for everybody here but i want to do everything that i can to influence those choices so that when I am gone, if the Lord tarries, there is an identity that is preserved. That the apostolic identity of being born again of water and spirit, of having my sins washed away in Jesus' name and being filled with the Holy Ghost and living a holy and a righteous life goes on. Not in my memory but in memory of where God brought them from and where he brought their father from and their grandmother from. That's what it's about. I want to teach them truth and why it matters, why compromise is not acceptable, why what Solomon did was wrong. I want to teach them to be in the house of God and not to neglect it. 
If we are the first generation this morning, if you're in this place and you know what it was to have not known God and to now know God, you know where he brought you from. And that's why when church is on, you are here. But some of us that have had this for too long have become too easy come, easy go. And you might still have a walk with God, but what are you sowing in the next generation? We want to teach our kids to live a separated life, to walk with God in righteousness and holiness. We want to teach them to love the church, to love their brothers and sisters. I don't want Solomon to be my example. My comfort, hear me this morning, my comfort should never lead to their downfall. My comfort in the kingdom should never lead to my children's identity being sacrificed on the altar of compromise. Bless the Lord. Turn with me to Psalm 48. There are some things that we might not do that our parents and, and grandparents did as a part of their consecration to God, and that's not necessarily wrong. Sometimes we, there's, there's understanding that comes about certain things and principles that are applied, and that's okay. But we, we need to make sure that those choices and those decisions are never made out of human comfort, never made out of pleasing a society that surrounds us with wickedness. Psalm 48 and verse 11, some of you will know this as a song. It says, let Mount Zion rejoice. Zion speaking of Jerusalem and in a spiritual type of the church of God. Let Mount Zion rejoice and let the daughters of Judah be glad because of thy judgments, Lord, because of his word. Walk about Zion and go round about her and tell the towers thereof. What does that mean to tell the towers? That means to say, these are the things that God has given us to strengthen us, to protect us, to watch for our souls. That's what the towers were for. They were for defense and for protection. Verse 13 says, Mark ye well her bulwarks, those things of strength and defense. Consider her palaces, the goodness of God. That, why? That you may tell it to the generation following, that they will remember and understand. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our God even unto death. Amen. If you read the Old Testament and study the Old Testament, there is a massive emphasis on remembering. Israel was told again and again to remember, to not forget, to remember. They built altars. They built that stack of stones at the Jordan River when the waters were parted, that when the kids said, what do these stones mean? Their fathers and mothers could say, that's when God brought us through. There was remembrance. There was all of these things, but it, it still became ritual. And they still lost what it was all about. Because it's not just about remembering here. It's about remembering where God dragged our sinful carcasses from. And the things that he's done in our families. Amen. I could stand here and tell you story after story about what happens when compromise comes into families. 
I could tell you about friends that I've grown up with that have walked away from truth and they're still in some sort of halfway place where they're going to some kind of church, but it's not what they were raised in or what they were taught was truth. Now, they still have a connection, but what about their kids? What about their kids? Bless the Lord. We need to remember. I was having a conversation with a family member a couple of years ago who's no longer going to a church that preaches the truth of God's word and, and they justified their decisions because of hurts or things that had happened and said, well, this is why and this is so on and so forth. And I said, okay, I said, what happens when they have a couple of young kids? I said, when your children begin to respond to the word of God and they want to get baptized and you tell them, well, no, we need to be baptized in Jesus' name because that's what the Bible says. How do you explain to them that that's not where you've brought them to. Bless the Lord. Hallelujah. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be coming to the communion table shortly. Communion of the Lord's Supper or other names that it may go by does not save a soul. It's important we understand that. You don't get saved from your sins by taking communion. But that doesn't mean it's not important. It is important because it was given to us by the Lord. And when you read the Gospels, you see the account of how Jesus sat with his disciples in that upper room, having the Passover with them for the last time, and how he took the bread, and he took the fruit of the cup, and he, he spoke to them, and he said, this, this bread is my body which is going to be broken for you. And he, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood. This, this blood is the, the token. It's the, the, the emblem of the new covenant that he was making with humanity of how through his death and burial and resurrection that salvation would be provided for for all of mankind. And we see that story or the account of that uh, time repeated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's some minor changes in the details in the three different accounts. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in what are called the Synoptic Gospels, you see that, that same pattern repeated where the Lord says, this is my body, this is my blood. And he says, when you do this, you do it in remembrance of me. But when you get to John's Gospel, John's kind of the odd one out in the Gospels. He's the one that's different from the others. And when you get to John's gospel and you find yourself reading that gospel and you come to that same time frame, there is no mention of bread. There's no mention of, of the fruit, juice, or the wine, whatever it was. You can debate that amongst yourselves. But there is no mention of that representing his blood or a covenant. That doesn't happen in the gospel of John. But what happens in the gospel of John that is different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke is that we read that Jesus got up from the table and that he gird himself, the Bible says, or he wrapped himself in a towel and he took a basin of water and he began one by one to wash his disciples' feet. Peter, as was Peter's way, said, Lord, not me. And the Lord said, if you don't let me do this, you have no part of me. And the Lord said to his disciples, it must have been an awkward feeling in the room. He was their master, washing their feet. It was culturally backwards. He was the master. They were his disciples. But he washed their feet. And he said to them, 
do you know what I've done unto you? As he said, if, if I, your master, would wash your feet, so ought you to do one for another. That only occurs or it's only recorded in John's gospel. It's not recorded anywhere else. But you see, to get the full picture of any part of what happened in Jesus' life, it's always good to put the gospels together and to, to add those pieces and try to fill out the picture as much as we can. And so when we have communion, we need to remember that this washing of feet was a part of that same time and a part of that same process. And Jesus gave us that as an example. Now, we're not going to literally wash feet this morning just in case anybody's getting nervous. It wouldn't hurt us to do so. But the thing is, you can wash somebody's feet and your heart can still be as hard as stone. Because like anything else, it can just become a ritual. The, the washing of a brother or a sister's feet is most important as an attitude of the heart and of a willingness to have a servant's attitude regardless of the behavior or conduct of our brother or sister. You see, in that table, they were all there, Matthew. I'm going to forget them all. I won't try to remember the 12. It's been a while since I've been in Sunday school. But there was one man who sat at that table with Jesus. His name was Judas Iscariot. Jesus knew that he would betray him. He knew as they sat to eat that that man would betray him, would sell him for 30 pieces of silver. And still he took the towel and he took the bucket or the basin and he got down on his knees. Sorry, Steve, you get to be Judas. He got down on his hands and his knees and he began to wash the feet of the very man that would go out from that meal and betray him to the Pharisees. Now, when you step back and you put that as a part of communion, that changes the way we see things a little bit. You see, the communion table is not just about us and Jesus. Because it's about us and Jesus and our brothers and sisters. Because when we read from 1 Corinthians, when we go there, we so often pick out, we start often at about verse 23 where Paul said, For I have received with the Lord that which I delivered unto you. And he gives instructions, which we will go through in a minute. And then we get down to about maybe verse 31 or 32 where the Bible says to examine ourselves. And that's often the, the, the slice that we take out of that chapter. But when you read Paul's teaching, it's broader than that because it starts, the teaching on communion starts really in verses 17 and 18 where it talks about brothers and sisters coming together with wrong hearts and wrong motives and there being rich people with lots to eat and poor people with nothing to eat who are embarrassed. And he's saying to them, this is not how communion ought to be. It's one of the reasons when we have communion, we only have a little token. We're not having a meal together. It's an emblem of remembrance. And Paul says, these things are not right. He said, when you come together into one place, it's not for a banquet. It's not so you can show how much you brought and how little the other person has and everybody's awkward. What he was trying, the, the principle he's communicating is that communion puts us all on the same plane. Every one of us stands desperately in need of the sacrifice of Calvary. 
rich, poor, whatever nationality you come from, educated, ignorant, young, old, whatever, we are all on the same plane when it comes to the communion table because every one of us stands guilty of sin and without that sacrifice, nobody qualifies. And Paul went on to give instruction and then at the end of chapter 11, after he says if we would examine ourselves and judge ourselves, we would not be judged He said, it's better to be chastened of the Lord now than to be condemned with the world. And then he said, wherefore, verse 33, he said, wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. Then he says, if you're hungry, eat at your house. That's not what coming to communion is for. But he said, when you come together, tarry one for another. That doesn't just mean wait if somebody's running late. Well, hang on, they'll be here soon. You know, there's Paul having communion at Corinth and you know, some, Apollos or somebody sends him a text message running 15 minutes late, bro, hang on, be there soon. That's not what he's talking about when it says tarry. There's a deeper meaning to it than that. There's the meaning of being able to wait for our brothers or our sisters while they find themselves, while they get back on track, while maybe they've offended us or hurt us. We have to be willing to tarry one for another because the Bible says if a brother be overtaken with a fault, ye which are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of meekness. Tarry one for another. The communion table is not just about us and Jesus. It's about that relationship first, because without that relationship being right, nothing else works. But it's about that relationship and that relationship. That's why Jesus said, first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like namely this. You love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, in those two commandments, in the keeping of those two commandments, you can fulfill the entire Old Testament. Because everything in the commandments in the Old Testament comes under one of those two categories. Relationship with God, relationship with brothers and sisters. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. So when we get back to the part we normally read, Verse 23, the Apostle Paul said, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed. Interesting place to start. He's just told them about how they are with each other, and then he says the same night he was betrayed. He could have said the night before he went to Calvary, when they were keeping the Passover. No, he identified that night as the night that he was betrayed says that he took bread, verse 24, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Not that any of us are worthy of forgiveness, but it's when we deliberately partake in that while we know we have sin in our hearts. That's why verse 28 says, let a man examine himself. Not examine the person next to him, but let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, 
not discerning the Lord's body. And then he goes on again to talk about being judged now rather than being judged later. So when we take communion, it's, it is a time of remembrance. It's a time when we remember what Jesus has done for us. But it also is something that the Scripture teaches us needs to be treated very, very seriously. To take it with a wrong heart or with a wrong spirit is to bring condemnation upon yourself. That's not something to take lightly. And the Apostle Paul, it's hard for us to grasp, but the Apostle Paul said when people do that, he said that's why among you there are people that are weak and sickly and some are even dead because they have treated the sacrifice of the Lord lightly. Amen. And so that's when the Bible says that we are to examine ourselves. That I, I teach this every time we have communion, but it's important we understand. It is never designed by God to examine ourselves and to be rejected. God does not want to exclude. He wants to always include. And so the opportunity to examine ourselves is an opportunity to make things right in our lives if there are things that we need to make right. It's an opportunity to say, Lord, wherever I'm fallen short of the mark, or if there's sin that you're aware of in your life, it's an opportunity to take that moment to repent, to make it right, and to get back on track. God does not want anybody to examine themselves and say, well, I'm failing miserably. I'm not going to take communion. Now, let me be very clear. If you're in sin and not interested in changing, please don't take communion. Do not do that. But if you want the grace and the mercy of God in your life, in a moment we're going to give everybody the opportunity to spend a minute or two saying, God, here I am. Examine my heart. Help me to remember Help us to remember, Lord God. I'd ask you to stand with me if you would. Hallelujah.